My name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. For this episode, we're going to focus on a topic that's kept everyone on the edge of their seats and glued to their screens. I'm talking, of course, about the US election. Irrespective of your point of view or political persuasion, this election was historic in so many ways, not least because it was conducted in the midst of a global pandemic. The ongoing response to COVID-19 will undoubtedly dominate the priorities of the new administration, including the steps that will need to be taken to deal with the economic impact. But there will be other priorities too. Climate change is expected to be one. Foreign policy and international relations may be another. However, much less has been said about the likely direction of financial policy and regulation under the new administration, which is what we'll be discussing in this episode. Once again, I'm joined by Scott O'Malia, ISDA's Chief Executive. Now, Scott, you've spent some time in Washington, both as a CFTC commissioner and working in the US Senate in various roles. What were your key takeaways from the election? Well, this was a very interesting election, an extraordinary election. After several days of counting and with the entire nation and frankly, the world watching, former Vice President Biden secured the requisite 270 electoral votes and the majority of the votes nationwide. Now, some predicted a blue wave with a switch in the control of the Senate to the Democrats. However, the Senate is still awaiting the outcome of two Georgia races, and the House Democrats appear to have lost a few seats. So it was a very mixed bag. What is clear is that this was a record-setting vote with a record turnout, with a very divided electorate. Now, for ISDA's part, our priorities will remain unchanged, irrespective of the election, from the implementation of margin and capital requirements to supporting the transition from LIBOR, we will remain focused on maintaining safe and efficient derivative markets. ISDA has always been engaged closely with policymakers and regulators at all levels, irrespective of who's sitting in the White House, and that will remain the case. Now, you mentioned a couple of big issues there, LIBOR transition, margin, capital. It's always difficult to gaze into a crystal ball, and I imagine it will be difficult to get too specific on any particular rules and regulations. But we've got some terrific guests with us today who, like you, have had experience sitting in the regulatory agencies and can give some unique insight into the process. That's right. We're going to be joined by Paul Atkins, Chief Executive at Potomac Global Partners and former SEC Commissioner from 2002 to 2008. And in the last election, Paul led the president-elect's transition team for an independent regulatory agencies. So I'm looking forward to hearing his views from that transition standpoint. We're also going to be joined by Fred Hatfield. Fred's a director of Intercontinental Exchange and serves as chairman of the board at ICE Futures. He also serves on the board of Aventus Systems, a global leader in financial surveillance and market risk. Fred was also a CFTC commissioner between 2004 and 2006. Now, both of our guests are political pros who have seen numerous changes in administration and have years of experience in both Congress and the executive branch. Terrific. Well, should we bring the guests on? Let's do it. Paul, Fred, welcome to The Swap, and thanks for joining us. took a bit of time, but we now know who the next president will be. What do you think high-level policy priorities of the Biden administration will be going forward, and how far up on the list of priorities is the financial market regulation likely to be? start with you, Fred. Well, thank you, Scott. First, for the Biden presidency to have a chance of success, COVID-19 needs to be in a place at a minimum where Americans are back at work. So a lot of his priorities will be impacted by the progress 
on COVID. And of course, whether or not the Republican control of the Senate happens, as a lot of people expect, as a result of the two Senate races in Georgia. One thing I would point out early on is the government is going to run out of funding again on December 11th. That is an opportunity to perhaps do some sort of mini COVID relief action, which Secretary Mnuchin and Speaker Pelosi were unable to do prior to the election. And I think Democrats may look back and say that was a missed opportunity because it was upwards of $2 trillion of potential COVID stimulus, which would have been extremely helpful to the economy as we go into a season where COVID is rising. And with regard to the financial regulatory piece and where that fits in, I would say that as opposed to 2008, when financial reform was front and center because of what had occurred with the crisis, and then we had Dodd-Frank in, in 2010, you had two years where, with the exception of Obamacare, financial reform was really the crux of the matter. And this time, I think it's going to be different because there are a number of other priorities. As much as Senator Sanders and Warren would like to bust up the banks, I don't think there's going to be the firepower or the bandwidth to do that, given the concerns that there are with healthcare, climate, immigration, and technologies that are all concerns of, uh, of the Biden administration. So on day one, look for Biden to do a temporary moratorium on deportations and separations at the border. He'll send the bill to Congress to grant a pathway for the Dreamers, and he'll rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, as well as the World Health Organization, given that I think COVID will still be in the crosshairs. But the bottom line is, with a divided Congress, my view is COVID and infrastructure are going to be the two things that are going to consume a lot of year one. So, Paul, Fred makes a compelling argument for a busy administration that is not really primarily focused on financial market regulation. Do you, do you share that view? Yeah, I mean, we'll see. So, I agree with Fred. I think that clearly is where the emphasis is going to be. It's just out of necessity, really. But notwithstanding everything else. And of course, a lot will depend on vaccines and how they're being developed, how efficacious they are. We have to remember that obviously this is a coronavirus, but so are, you know, so are the flu and the common cold. And we see that we have nothing for the common cold as far as vaccine goes. And I'd argue the flu vaccine or the flu shots are not necessarily very efficacious either because the critter changes so much and, and adapts and evolves so quickly. So leaving all that aside, the job one is to try to get people back to work and back to not being afraid to venture out of their basement or wherever else, which was, I think, one of the issues that we had with the campaign where Vice President Biden didn't really campaign very much, as traditionally, um, of course, and he was more the anti-Trump, which, I mean, obviously, that was a strategy. So it's a little bit inscrutable as to what the actual issues 
are that he would be working on. And so it's arguably he has very little mandate uh, really outside of COVID. As he's described his own focus is the virus. He's added energy and climate change, and then maybe infrastructure like Fred was talking about. So financial services is not necessarily top priority, but you have to remember particular regulatory agencies and, of course, the Treasury Department all play a very big role in whether or not it's controlled or micromanaged from the White House. Most of these are independent agencies, so they have their own proclivities and their own mandates from statute to do anyway. So I expect that there will be something. If you look at some of the other Democrat think tanks, the Center for American Progress and others have been talking about for a while how financial services should be the route through which the government drives climate change reaction or however you want to describe it here in the Congress that's about to end. They have introduced and entertained and and even passed a number of bills that would do just that with respect to my old agency, uh, the SEC, with respect to disclosure. So I think we'll see that sort of thing go on in the new administration, uh, regardless of whether or not the White House is focused on it. And then like Fred said, a lot of this depends on what happens in Georgia. So we'll see how it goes in the new year. So financial services may not be at the top of the ticket when it comes to the Biden agenda. There's COVID, the economy, infrastructure, et cetera. But certain changes were made during the financial regulation over the past four years that have been perceived in some quarters as rollback of Dodd-Frank. First, is this perception fair, do you think? And second, do you think the Biden administration will want to reverse any of those changes? Let's start with you, Paul. So I don't really view the the changes overall that were made by the Trump administration in financial services. Let's obviously stick to that as being really, you know, hugely deregulatory. I think it was really changing things around the edges, like, for example, the Volcker rule. I mean, that was very controversial, and it had huge effects on liquidity in the marketplace, especially in fixed income. And even the Fed staff came out with a report saying just that. And so it was really incumbent on people to try to get that rule changed so that it would actually even work, whether or not you think that it starts from a good empirical sort of proposition rather than just a political reaction. So that's one example. And there are others on capital and and people can disagree about capital levels and, and everything, but it was more, I would say, tweaking around the edges. And the SEC, I don't think, did a lot of really huge changes with respect to anything they touched on. Everything is pretty much as it was when they found it. So I think that there hasn't been a huge amount of change. So Fred, Paul didn't think there was going to be, a, or maybe hoped, there was going to be a huge change in, in rollbacks. What's your take on this, maybe a, from a CFTC perspective? Yeah, I thought what Paul was saying was that the Trump administration hadn't actually changed a great deal that had been enacted after 2008. And I think that on the whole, that's true. I do think from a Democratic perspective, the one fly in the ointment that maybe irritates Democrats the most is the Consumer Protection Bureau. I do think that as the sole agency in the Democrats' view that looks after the consumer, there's a feeling that that agency was emasculated and that it needs to be reinvigorated. 
But I would say from a a 10,000 foot level in 2021, I don't think you would see uh, a lot of major changes. Paul's talked about some of the outside groups and some of the members of Congress. But the fact is, those outside groups and members of Congress are not going to be able to do a lot in a divided Congress. And secondly, I would say that for 2021 at least, you're not going to see a great deal change simply because we've got to get the cabinet appointed and then you've got the agencies under the cabinets to get appointed. So until we get into the second quarter of 2021, you're not going to have boots on the ground to start making changes. That having been said, uh, you asked me specifically about my former agency. Let me use a, an example from that agency to give you my view of, of what I see happening or not happening. Just recently, 10 years after the passage of Dodd-Frank, we finally passed the position limit rule that was being worked on when you were a commissioner. And so that rule has just gone into place. And even though two sitting Democrats voted against it, I doubt you're going to see a real willingness to open that thing back up without a chance to see how it works after all the time, the court cases that have been spent on it. And so as much as some of these outside groups may saber rattle to have that revisited, I just don't see how that works. And so you may ask, well, there was the Congressional Review Act, which the Trump administration used very effectively to overturn 16 Obama era rules at the beginning of the Trump administration. Well, the two Georgia Senate seats go Republican. There's no chance for a Congressional Review Act to even be in place. And even then, it is only in place for rules that were done within the last 60 legislative days of session of Congress. Finally, Scott, this may be of interest to you as a former commissioner, you look at the Commodity Exchange Act. Well, the Commodity Exchange Act hasn't been reauthorized since 2008. That is a potential vehicle where some changes to some of the things that Paul was alluding to uh, could occur for Democrats. But again, if that hasn't happened since 2008, I don't know how it happens in a Congress that is split with a Democratic House and a Republican Senate. Well, the bottom line is installing regs and undoing regs is not the easiest thing, and it just doesn't happen by magic wand, but just with a new president coming in. Fred, one quick question. You mentioned position limits being quite a provocative rulemaking. What about cross-border? It was provocative in 2012 when it was guidance. It was recently finalized as a final rule. Where do you think that stands in terms of Democrat targets? It was obviously a flashpoint with earlier commissions and earlier chairmans of commissions. But I think the United States has realized that some of the positions that we took in that first post-Dodd-Frank rulemaking are really a poke in the eye to the Europeans, and we've been sort of paying for it ever since. I think what uh, Chairman Tarbert has done really well is to mend those bridges to start a process where the United States 
is recognizing foreign boards of trades, and we expect reciprocation. So to the extent that reversing a very recent rule like that would back up that process, I think it would be a mistake, and I think it would be difficult to do. I tend to agree with you on that. It is now down to a low simmer, except for the one important question of Brexit. Even though the EU and the UK are still working to see if they can negotiate an 11th hour trade agreement, steps have been taken to ensure that EU and UK firms can access uh, central counterparties in each other's jurisdictions. For example, EU authorities unilaterally announced that EU entities could temporarily continue to use a UK CCP for up to 18 months after the end of the Brexit transition period. However, similar steps are not being recognized regarding trading venues. These markets are global and the future relationship between the EU and UK will also likely create spillover effects and opportunities for US platforms and firms. Do either one of you uh, see market participants positioning themselves to ensure that they're able to continue to serve EU, UK, and US clients as effectively? Is this an opportunity for the US? Yeah, we'll see if all of these issues are ripe for negotiation and working out, and a lot depends. The Europeans have tried to reinvigorate their efforts here in the last couple of years to focus on the capital markets and try to build up capital market area in Europe. And obviously, the United States has a very deep culture in uh, with respect to capital markets. And in Europe, that just hasn't tended to be the case. Uh, investors are focused more on uh, debt securities, the famous Belgian dentist who buys a bond and then sticks it under the mattress and, and doesn't really think about it anymore. So they're trying to jumpstart that uh, whole mindset regarding capital markets. I think it's going to take a while. So with that as a base, U.S. is preeminent, of course, in, in the broker-dealer area, and then also you know, with respect to fund management, mutual funds, and, and uh, private equity firms, and, and all of that. So that's probably not going to change in the near future. But what happens with uh, the U.K., of course, has a uh, over effects influences what how the EU approaches the US and, and our whole relationship with passporting and, and everything else. So all that's uh, very crucial. I'm glad that the US under the Trump administration, I think, unlike in some other areas, financial regulators have really been focused on trying to rebuild the bridges. Under the Obama administration, it was really shocking on how things did fall apart. Fred alluded to that. So it took Chris Giancarlo and Heath Tarbert to really focus on trying to rebuild bridges. The same with the Fed. Randy Corals, I think, has done a very good job with respect to his uh, central bank colleagues. So we'll see. Let's hope that this new sort of collaboration uh, continues. I think it probably will, and especially now that uh, the Trump administration has smoothed over some of the rough edges, now that the Biden folks will be coming in and they want to focus on climate change, which is what the Europeans are, you know, that's the first thing out of their mouths when they talk about issues, except for COVID now, I guess. But anyway, I'm sure they'll find common cause uh, in that. Let's talk about COVID real quickly. March of this year, the financial system was tested when COVID-19 became the pandemic. It forced the shutdown of the global economy and sending traders from the trading floor into their living rooms to execute trades. The Federal Reserve, market regulators, and Congress all responded quickly and in a muscular fashion with monetary and fiscal stimulus 
and regulatory relief to make sure that that crisis did not spill out further. It appears that the financial system responded well, maybe bending, but it certainly did not break in the face of the crisis. What were your takeaways from this event, and how do you think the Biden administration might review this recent market turmoil and and use that narrative for any regulatory outcomes they they desire? Let's go to you, Fred. I'm going to talk about the equity markets first, and the equity markets responded really well to the volatility that occurred in March as a result of COVID. The changes that have been put in place since 2010 actually worked. There was a problem with the overnight futures, with futures opening up in the morning, were down significantly on several days, and that then caused a sell-off in the equity markets. I think the equity markets were halted four times during that process. And there were some people that had some concerns about that, and there were some people actually within the administration urging the president to shut down the equity markets for a time, which uh, occurred in a couple other countries in the world. And the, the administration made the correct decision, which is having the equity markets open is not only a sign of confidence in the economy, but it is an access vehicle for people who have their resources there that sometimes need access to withdrawing them. So I would say that From an equity market standpoint, even having to close the floor for a while because of some couple of positive tested cases of coronavirus, the equity markets performed very well. The debt markets in March were a problem. The increasing notional volume resulted in exceptionally elevated costs, and the volumes could not keep up with demand. As a result, the short-term financial market prices dropped, the bid-ask spreads widened, and the margins increased. And only with a Fed intervention did those markets calm down. It was a difficult period for corporate bond markets. It was a dash for cash. They sold treasuries. They sold gold. They sold anything they could get their hands on. So some of the financial changes that were made after 2008 were not beneficial to the markets. And one of the things that was taken away was the flexibility for dealers to step into the market and provide liquidity. And so that needs to be revisited. And I think end-of-day pricing needs to be revisited. Paul, your take on that? I think overall, the way the Trump administration reacted to the financial crisis there of, with respect to the fallout of the epidemic was very good. And I think it really helped calm the market. And now you know, we face the specter perhaps of a double dip type of thing with Europe uh, being shut down and we'll see what happens over here in the United States. So what would happen now and how would the Biden folks look at it? And I'm not the best one to speak on this, but I do think that maybe just based on past comments by various folks who are close to the campaign, Maybe one thing they may fault the Trump folks with is that there was too much emphasis on larger firms and banks. So with respect to even the PPP program, the emphasis was on banks to push the money out to uh, their smaller clients rather than for 
other sorts of methods. So maybe there'll be more of an innovative approach looking at social finance and some of those types of platforms. So we'll see. Now, you both mentioned climate change and environmental policy at the top of the podcast in terms of a priority for the Biden administration. How do you expect this to influence the priorities at either the CFTC or the SEC? Fred, how do you see this market developing and and what's your outlook on a possible carbon tax? As I said, I think that uh, one of the first things that President-elect Biden would do would be to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Look, the Green No Deal is out. There's not going to be support in the House now that it's closer for the Green New Deal, let alone in the Senate. So the question is, what are the alternatives to the Green New Deal? Some of the focus that you may see is on increased funding for alternative energy and greater regulation on some areas of the oil and gas industry. For instance, President-elect Biden has been very clear about what he would not like to see done on federal lands, such as fracking. I think a good jumping off point, though, with talking about the CFTC, as I think you asked me, is Russ Benham, Commissioner Russ Benham, has sort of taken the lead on this as chairman of the Market Risk Advisory Committee at the CFTC. And he put out a a very thoughtful report about a month ago called Climate Risk in the U.S. Financial Markets. The first thing that it it, it has eight different sections of recommendations with a number of recommendations under each of those eight sections. But the first thing it calls for is a carbon tax. The problem with passing a carbon tax is that the moderates that are left in the Senate, they are not going to be for a carbon tax. So my personal view is it's going to be very hard to see a carbon tax pass. I happen to believe It's a responsible solution. There's industry groups now that are organized in support of it that actually include oil and gas companies. So maybe given time, it can can gain some traction. I don't think it's there now. But I do think what you're seeing if Commissioner Berkowitz is chairman of the CFTC or Commissioner Benham is chairman of the CFTC, I think you're going to see some movement in the direction of from an operational standpoint, are the companies and exchanges that they regulate, are they including environmental risks in their operational management? Just like their cyber risks have to have certain standards, their operational risks might have to include some sort of environmental risk assessment, similar that is done in other areas. Paul, where do you see corporate disclosures going? That that was a complex and difficult issue to solve, apparently in this MRAC report, and then also the huge demand from clients, asset managers, pension funds, et cetera. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's a new flavor of the year or whatever as far as from customer demand. But for all the uh, discussion around it, the actual numbers of money going into that, that, yeah, it's starting from a low base and it's it's grown, but still they pale in comparison to, um, you know, everything else. But anyway, I think there's been a temptation for weaponization of disclosure. And even what we've seen come out of the house is where 
you know, members of Congress are basically, and this is on the Democrat side, of course, are basically straightforward saying, yeah, you know, we're going to use any tool at our disposal to try to get people to do what, if we can't get it through legislation, can't get it through regulation, we'll get it through any other way. And so that's why, again, Michael Bloomberg has put his money into things to try to deliver that sort of a thing through a behavior of corporations and then by targeting financial services firms so they'll be named and shamed if they uh, invest in projects that are seen to be you know non-green or whatever the case may be so that will continue i think and then as far as the new biden administration is the signal that um, environmental concerns will be raised uh, at treasury including other places like state and energy of course agriculture and whatnot and there was a team of former Obama administration officials who put together a blueprint uh, as a suggestion of how Biden can navigate the climate and jump over the hurdles that Obama faced. And so one of the recommendations was to include the National Climate Policy Council as a counterpart to the National Economic Council. There's already the Council of Economic Quality in the White House, but uh, this would be to uh, elevate that. Talking about doing a carbon bank under the Department of Agriculture and then use Treasury to uh, focus on budget tax and regulatory policy to promote uh, carbon reductions. And then that carries forward into the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is a group of uh, 10 regulators um, of federal financial services uh, agencies. And so that that's already kind of been underway with respect to the Financial Stability Board, which is uh, part of the G20 group of central bankers at the Fed. Their most recent financial stability report, they talked about climate change as a risk to financial stability. So that opens the door there for the Fed and for the FSOC. So I looked to the Fed staff to try to focus on measuring that risk and how to calculate it. We heard about uh, stress testing and whatnot. All of this stuff is very speculative. So uh, my hat's off to the economists if they can figure out uh, ways to work that in. Treasury is going to be tasked with developing policy and coordinating with financial regulators. The SEC is going to probably, I would imagine, launch an advisory committee on ESG issues and focus on disclosures. Well, as the old saying goes in Washington, people are policy. So we should be watching who will be named to these key policy positions. Maybe not go through the names that have been beginning to show up in the paper, but what do you expect in terms of personnel changes in the supervisory agencies? If you look at Ted Kaufman, who is leading the transition, and I understand this, obviously he worked for Vice President for former Vice President for a long time and uh, took his place in Congress. He was pretty outspoken with respect to big banks and that sort of thing. You know, there are former Elizabeth Warren and the staff members who've been uh, working with him, um, as well as Gary Ginsburg, of course. So I think that you know there's always a balance and uh, how people draw up uh, lists and, and how you know, former Vice President and uh, Senator Harris, um, I assume, is going to be involved as well. But it'll be interesting to see how they come out. But it's going to be a tug of war between the various uh, factions uh, in the party. And I imagine that at Labor and at Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, there will be people uh, on one side of things 
maybe at Treasury and the Fed, it will be sort of, you know, different, more middle of the road. So we'll see. And I, agencies like, you know, the SEC and the CFTC are much more nerdy than others. So it takes, I mean, we'll see what, what type of person they put there. Fred, what do you think? I think there is a level of concern and criticism of the landing teams for Biden, teams that are overseeing the appointments in these positions. And certainly former Chairman Gensler has been sort of a flashpoint for that because he was considered such a hard driver of Dodd-Frank regulation. I think there's been some concern that more centrists haven't been named to those landing teams. A lot of us, frankly, because of the positions that we're in, can't be part of those landing teams, unfortunately. But there's definitely an activist group that wants to label corporatists as people that maybe should not be high up on the list of appointments to the Biden administration. So I do think that there's a focus on the progressive wing of the party being represented in these appointments, because in the past that hasn't always happened. And I do think there is a legitimate case to be made, and it was recently made by Georgetown professor Chris Brummer, that there is a need in the financial community at the regulatory level for more diversity. There's been practically no racial diverse candidates to head up regulatory agencies or even to serve on commissions that Scott, you and Paul and I have have served on. Getting back to where is my level of worry about all of this? Not as high as Paul's probably is. And I would say, you know, he mentioned Ted Kaufman, who, who I agree is is not in my lane of political democracy with a capital D. But, in, but, you know, Ron Klain, who's the chief of staff, comes from a venture capital firm. And what Paul didn't mention is the other chairman of the transition countering Ted Kaufman is Jeff Science, who was a Bain and Company employee for a long time and is a very steeped person in the business community. So I think at the end of the day, look, at I served in the U.S. Senate when Joe Biden was president. Joe Biden is not Bernie Sanders and he's not Elizabeth Warren. So if you want to talk about people or policy, you have to sort of stop, start from the top down. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I appreciate the insight that you both have given. But before I let you go, I always want to ask my guests a final question about themselves and their background. You've both had extraordinarily varied careers. You did both serve as political appointees in the CFTC and the SEC, respectively. How did you get into this position and space? So I'm sort of reminded of the Will Rogers quote, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. So there was no grand scheme for me to go from one thing to another to sort of end up being a financial regulator and a, and a member of board of financially regulatory companies. But I was a Senate chief of staff for Senator John Bo of Louisiana, who sat on the Senate Finance and Senate Commerce Committees. I spent a lot of time working on financial and commerce issues. And when my senator decided to retire in 2004, the majority leader was Tom Daschle, who had been my typical Washington fashion. He was my next door neighbor. So I told Tom that uh, with my interest in financial services and commerce, I don't want to leave government as a chief of staff because it's a person who's a generalist and 
I wanted to drill down more into more of the details of policy. So Tom said, well, look, right now in the financial area, we have the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and we have the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. So I did a little research. And then I talked to Walt Lucan, who's now the head of the Futures Industry Association. I had helped him in his confirmation to become a commissioner there. And Walt, over a couple of beers, convinced me of great interest I should have in going to the CFTC. And he was absolutely right, because those markets were taking off and growing much faster than the equity markets. So I hit it at the right time. And it was luck, fortuitous, and knowing a good friend like Walt Lucan. Paul, how about you? How did you end up at the SEC? I was coming of age there, going out into the business world in the Reagan years, and the markets were really taking off. And I had been fascinated for a long time with the securities markets. And so I worked for a summer uh, during law school up in New York City. It happened to be Ruben Jeffries' firm where he was. But after I had done that summer, I thought I should really be an investment banker or something like that. That'd be a lot more fun. And the couple of projects I worked on, it was really fascinating and I shouldn't, you know, maybe not be a lawyer. And so I applied to business school, got into Ruben's alma mater. And so I was flirting with that. So I remember he called me the night of, it was like the hundredth anniversary of the Brooklyn Bridge. And so he was calling with, he had an apartment on uh, Brooklyn Heights and there were fireworks in the background. He had a party. And I said, you shouldn't be talking to me. I'm just a little nerdy law student here. You should be out with your friends. No, 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 this is a good time to talk. So he, he talked about that and convinced me to you know ultimately go back to New York and uh, work at the law firm. So I did and got there and went by his office. Uh, one of the first days when I was there, knock on the door. Hi, Ruben, I'm here to you know just say hi. And I'm at the firm, he said, oh, Paul, I've been meaning to tell you, I'm leaving for Goldman Sachs in 10 days. <laughs> so anyway, I had a, obviously a productive time. I learned a lot uh, practicing law in, in New York and Paris. But then when I got engaged, the real person who got me to where I down in at the SEC sort of inadvertently was my wife. So I'd gotten engaged and she said, I'm not moving to New York. You should need to find another job. And so I sent my resume to friends of Washington and said, okay, now I need to get out of New York and find something. Washington seems like a good compromise uh, between New York and elsewhere where maybe I can do something. And so uh, my resume wound up, however, it pinged around to Richard Breeden, who had just become a new chairman at the SEC. And he was looking for somebody who had been a corporation finance and M&A lawyer, which is what I did. So the rest is history. And then I worked for him and then Arthur Levitt uh, when he came in in the Clinton administration and ultimately came back to the SEC uh, 10 years later as a commissioner under the Bush administration. Fantastic. It is serendipity sometimes. And of course, Ruben also served as the chair of the CFTC as well. So all things lead to the CFTC somewhere or another. Well, gentlemen, you've both been terrific guests. I really want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast and look forward to having you back very soon. Thank you both. Thanks for having us, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Interesting discussion, Scott. Obviously, there's still a lot of uncertainty and a lot that's unknown, but it was fascinating to get a a flavor of what the key issues might be. Both Fred and Paul agreed that financial issues are probably unlikely to be a priority with everything else going on. But climate change seems to be, everyone agrees that that's going to be a big focus. As a former regulator yourself, 
to what extent do these high-level priorities in the White House filter down to the, the agenda of the agencies? Well, I think they do. And certainly with a new appointment in the chair level will have a, a big impact on the direction of the agencies. So we'll have to see who was selected as chair of the CFTC, the SEC, the various prudential regulators. It'll be fascinating to watch and see where their agendas go. I, I agree absolutely that uh, the environmental strategies are going to be probably front and foremost in terms of what financial regulation changes will be. I do think there could be a little bit of cleanup of, of what was deemed as previous uh, regulatory rollback, potentially on a Volcker rule, potentially on cross-border. So let's just touch on climate change. You mentioned that, Paul and Fred both mentioned that as well. And, and that links in nicely with some of the work that ISDA's focusing on at the moment. Could you quickly summarize our work in this space? Well, right now it's of alignment and transparency. And we want to make sure that the, the, the markets function well, that we have clear standards, whether it's data standards, how we describe environmental events, how we describe environmental products. I think there's a lot of work to be done to line these things up with cash markets and derivative products. And then we'll have a better sense of how these markets can trade. There's a lot of work to be done and big asset managers, uh, pension funds, et cetera, really are interested in, in getting some exposure to these products. So I think we're going to see a lot of development and evolution of the product set. We're going to see some markets changing. Um, I agree that carbon tax or pricing of carbon is probably not in the cards given this closely divided Congress, but there's a lot of work to be done. And then there's the issue of risk appropriateness. That's a very complex area, assigning risk analysis related to climate. There's just going to be a lot of work to be done on that front to unpack that question, understand the scenarios, understand the potential outcomes and stress testing. Well, ESG, climate change, sustainability, that's going to be a topic that, uh, that undoubtedly we're going to be discussing on several occasions over the next year or so. But let's, let's leave it there for now. The results of the election will clearly be a talking point as the new teams get into place and specific policies start to emerge. So I'm sure we'll come back to this as well in the not too distant future. Oh, I have no doubt about that. In the meantime, we've got lots of other topics to talk about. So Scott, I will speak to you next time. Great. Thanks, Nick. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.